Well, it is good to see everybody here this morning and certainly a great opportunity to be together as God's family, to, to praise Him and to worship Him and to spend time in God's Word together. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Well, we have been in for quite some time the book of First uh, Peter. I bet when, you, when we started this, uh, you looked at it and thought, well, this is a little short book. This won't take much time. I'm not going to tell you what uh, somebody's Amber Alert is going off. Uh, but, uh, or maybe there's a missile coming this way. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, I'm not going to tell you how many lessons in first Peter this is because I just don't want you to know. Uh, some of you may actually be able to figure that out. Ronald, do you know how many? No. All right. Good. Glad to hear it. Ronald keeps notes. I thought maybe he had them written down. Juan, do you know? No, good. All right. So we're clear. Uh, but we've been looking at First Peter as Peter's guide to uh, strangers or foreigners in this world. And he's mentioned that several times. And one of the things that we've mentioned uh, is that when you go to a foreign country, you stand out. Uh, you're different. Even if you go to somewhere like England where they s- sort of speak our language... They've butchered it, but you know, they sort of speak our language. Uh, You're going to stand out. I've never been to Canada, but I would suspect that if I went to Canada, it wouldn't take them long to figure out I was not from Canada. And I think that's one of the things that Peter is trying to tell us. As I read through the New Testament, it becomes clear to me that what God is trying to tell us here is that when we become Christians... We are different from the world around us. On Sunday morning, the Bible classes have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I've been doing that with with the junior high as well. And I believe that the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is calling us to be different. Not just different from the world around us. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he's even calling us to be different from the religious people around us. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that or surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So let let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. Romans chapter 12, and we spent a long time in Romans chapter 12, and it begins with that statement, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. And then in Philippians chapter 2, I love it where he says that you ought to shine like stars in the universe. And then Peter reminds us that we are a chosen people. We are a royal people priesthood. We are a holy nation. We have been set apart by God. And part of that being set apart by God means that we are going to be different from the world around us. And Peter continues this discussion in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at these verses with us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, 
Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. But live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter tells us that we need to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. And I don't think we can read that verse and not think about what Paul had to say in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and this. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. He says that we need to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, praying at all times. I told you a couple weeks ago that one of Paul's favorite metaphors or analogies for or similes for for the Christian life was the athlete his second favorite is the soldier and I think that that is very applicable because we need to remember and realize that we are at war there is a war going on around us We see war every day, don't we? We see it in the news and we see it, you know, there's all kinds of physical wars and all kinds of physical uh, weapons and all these different things. But Paul and Peter both remind us that we are in a spiritual war. And while human wars, man-made wars may have to do with ideology or may have to do with, with geography and may have to do with any number of different things. This spiritual war has to do with the everlasting souls of mankind. We need to make sure, and Peter will remind us in a little bit, but we need to make sure that we understand that there is an enemy out there. And he is doing his very best to take our soul. <clears throat> he is doing his very best to take the souls of those we love. <clears throat> And so Peter tells us about some things that we must be reminded of. Beginning with, first of all, he says, that when we arm ourselves, one of the first things we will do is we will be done with sin. He says, be done with sin. You know, the eye is a remarkable thing, is it not? It can focus on things close and things far away. You will notice these are not my normal reading glasses that I normally use when I get up here. These are actually my glasses glasses. Those of you that don't know, I wear, I wear contacts normally. And then, of course, I use my reading glasses because otherwise I'd have to get that giant print Bible, you know, and I'd have to stand up here, you know, because, but anyway, 
But some of you know from Wednesday night that, that uh, I, had a, I had an eye infection this week along with a cold and, and everything. And, and my eyes are all red and we won't go into it. But anyway, it was not a good thing. And unfortunately, I was on my last set of contacts. And so now my eyes have cleared up. The infection has gone away. But, you know, I really didn't want to put those contacts back in my eye. Because my guess is they probably had, you know, infection on them. And so I'll go tomorrow to get some new contacts. So these are my bifocals, more or less. Only they're not real bifocals, you know, the kind that had the line on them and, you know, and you can read. You young people don't even know what I'm talking about, but the rest of you do. Uh, These are what they call progressive bifocals. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. And the reason that I hate them is I can only, the only thing actually in focus is what I am absolutely staring at. In other words, everything on the periphery out here is blurry. You have to be, so if I'm not looking, this is your morning, okay? If I'm not looking directly at you, I can't see you. But I can turn real quick, so heads up. But the eye can focus and do all these different things. And one of the things that the eye can do is the eye can take the little tiniest bit of light and magnify it to where we can actually see in almost total darkness. You've been there, right? You wake up or whatever, or you turn the light off, you know, and, and, it, and it's dark and you think you can't see a thing. And you just wait a few minutes and then all of a sudden you begin to be able to see the things around you. You see, the eye begins to adjust to the darkness. We begin to adjust to the darkness around us. And unfortunately, as Christians, I think this happens in our lives as well. We begin to adjust to the darkness around us. We begin to adjust to the world around us. We begin to feel comfortable in the world around us. Peter tells us that we've spent enough time living for earthly and human desires that we become too comfortable with the world around us, with drunkenness and debauchery and lust and idolatry. And he could have listed a whole bunch of other things. He says these should be things of the past. And these are not acceptable for our life now. And he says, think about Jesus. Think about what he suffered. Think about the price that was paid. We, we sung that song before communion. He paid a debt he did not owe. And I owed a debt I could not pay. Jesus died for our sins. It was our sins. It was my sins that put him on the cross. Why would I continue to live in that sin? I read this analogy and I kind of debated about whether to share it or not because it, 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 it's kind of gruesome, but it really makes a point. Suppose one of your children was stabbed to death by some crazy maniac, some horrible, evil, wicked criminal. How many of us would take the knife and enclose it in glass 
and place it on the mantle. And if anybody came in and said, what is that? Oh, that's the knife that the guy used to kill my daughter. That's the knife that the guy used to kill my wife or my son or whatever the case may be. We would not do that, would we? That seems reprehensible. That seems almost gross, doesn't it? We would not do that. Paul says, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? How can we continue to to appreciate and continue to live in those things that actually put Jesus on the cross? Just as Jesus died in our sins, we have died to sin. We live a new life and we spend enough time in sin and debauchery and all these things that Peter listed. We live a new life. We have to be done with sin. Secondly, he says that we live for God's glory or God's will. We live for God's will. God has a will for your life. You remember when we were studying the story? I know for some of you may not have been here, but you know we, we were going through the story. And you remember that it talked about, and we talked about the upper story. And that's the ultimate God's will. Remember, it has to do with, you know, from the, from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of, of, of sin, man's fall, that all the rest of the story was all about God reconciling man back to him. That was the upper story. And then there's what we call the lower story. That was the individual stories that we have in the Bible that fit into the upper story. But the people in the lower story didn't get it most of the time. They didn't understand what was going on. Moses and Abraham and Isaac and and the prophets and David and all of these people. All these things were happening, but they, they didn't really see it in context of the upper story. And then we talked about our story. Your story. God has a story for you. God has a will for you. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't have a total grasp or handle on to what extent God has a specific will for my life. Was it specifically God's will that I come to Dangerfield 30-something years ago? Was it specifically, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you, exactly about that. But I do know that God has an overriding will for my life. And that is my salvation. That is the saving of my soul. He went to great lengths to provide our salvation. We sing songs like God sent his son. The Lamb of God. It ought to mean something to us. That Almighty God cares enough about us to save us. Peter's going to say in 2 Peter, Not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. God loves us. God cares about us. His overriding will for our lives is our salvation. But his will also includes our transformation. God's will, I know he does have, I know part of his specific will for my life. 
And that is that I be transformed. That I be whole, become holy. That I be more Christ-like in my life. That is God's will for my life. That I put away the sin. And that I live for him. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. I wanted to read these verses. It says, finally brothers. And you may think, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? I'll make the connection maybe. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, in order to fulfill his will, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know that the instructions we gave you by the authority were by the authority of our Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, he who rejects his instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his spirit. You know, when I teach the young people, talk to the young people about sexual immorality, I, we, we eventually get to a point where I ask them sometimes, you know, I know it's a little different from when I grew up and certainly different from when a lot of you who are further on the maturity level than I am physically Uh, but you know I I say if the world tells you if if those in authority if they tell you you know not to engage in sexual activity what do they say why do they say not to do that and they come up with the well you know there's diseases out there you know Uh, you might become pregnant You're not emotionally ready to handle that yet. And those are the reasons that the world would tell us, you know, to wait. But the world would also tell us, if you can insure against those things, have at it, right? That's pretty much what the world says. But I say to the young people, and in looking at this in general to all of us, those aren't the reasons we don't commit sexual immorality those aren't the reasons that we control ourselves the reasons we control ourselves is because god has called us not to live impure lives but to live holy lives not because we might get a disease or we might get pregnant like that but god has called us to a higher standard that is god's will for our lives he tells us Jesus, we aren't kind to people because it looks good. We don't control our temper because it keeps us out of trouble. We aren't conscientious on the job to impress our boss. We live this way because it is God's will that we live this way. Now, are the other things things that might happen? Yeah, but that's not why we do them. We live righteous lives. 
We live holy lives. We live different lives because it is God's will for us that we do so. And not just because that's what he wants. You know what I mean? But because he knows that's what's best for us. Because he wants what's best for us. Jesus made it clear that he came to earth to do the will of the Father who sent him. While we live in the flesh, we live for the will of God. Not our own will. Not the will of the flesh. Not the will of society. Not the will of our family. Not the will of our friends. But God's will must rule in our lives. And his will for us is to live pure and holy lives. Different from the world around us. And thirdly, he says, don't be surprised by abuse. He's going to go into suffering in a greater discussion beginning in verse 12. But I love what he says here. When we live according to God's will, <coughs> the world will be confused. Look, at, Listen to this. They, meaning the world, think it's strange that you do not plunge with them. Into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. Now, that's out of the New International Version. And I know that now, the New International Version is old. But originally, when the New International Version came out, the point was to try to make it easier to read in relation to the King James Version. Okay? And it accomplished that fact. But this is one of those places where I read the NIV and I go, huh? They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. How many of you have used the word dissipation this week? How many have used the word dissipation ever? When not reading this verse. One. And she doesn't count. That is one of those words that I'm just like, what? Now, you English and reading teachers out there, using context clues, you can figure out what it means. But I did the Norman thing. I looked it up. I had to go down to like the third definition to find a definition that fit in the context of what it's trying to say here. First of all, the first definition was the act of being dissipated. What's the first rule we know about a definition? You can't use the word in the definition. I don't know what Webster was thinking, but anyway... You go down a little bit, and it says the squandering of money, energy, and resources. Okay, that's beginning to touch on it. And then a little later down in the definition, it'll talk about partying and all these different kinds of things. But that really gets into the context. Here is the message. The message is a translation or a, uh, you know, and, and this is what it says. Of course your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore. 
Yeah, that's it. That, that, that's it. Didn't even have to use the word dissipation. They think it's strange that you don't keep doing the things that you used to do with them. Or if you didn't used to do it with them, they think it's strange that you're not doing the same things they're doing. That you're not acting like them. There is always going to be pressure to return to the former way of life. Now we've talked about this several times. Those of us who grew up in the church. Those of us who grew up always knowing right from wrong. Always being held accountable either by our parents or by our our parents' friends or, or grandparents or whomever. You know, we may not have done all those things, you know. But for those who come out of a very worldly lifestyle, where there is a dramatic change in focus and in activity and in lifestyle, it is very difficult to break with that lifestyle. It is real easy to get caught up and brought back into that lifestyle. Because as we talked about with Yai, that is what we are familiar with. That is what we understand. That is what we are comfortable with. And he says here, your friends who you used to do these things with, they're going to want to know what's up with you. Why won't you go out with us and do this anymore? Why don't you talk like this anymore? Why don't you tell the same kind of jokes that we've always told before? Why are you, why won't you lie about this? Or why won't, why won't you do all these things? We don't understand that you used to. Yeah, I used to. But I'm changed. I'm different. And Peter says here that it starts with confusion. They think it's strange. I don't, I don't understand. Why? You used to do this. Why don't why, why you? They're confused by it. But very soon that confusion turns to abuse and persecution in a sense. Because, and many of us have been there, we've seen this happen. Oh, well, all of a sudden you think you're too good for us. All of a sudden you've got this holier than thou attitude. All of a sudden, these things that you used to do, you used to do these things just like us. Now you want to do them and you think you're too good for us. Uh, you're just Mr. Perfect, Miss Whatever. And we got to explain to him, I don't know. I don't think I'm too good. I'm, I'm just changed. I'm changed. But they don't see it that way. They see our refusal to engage in the things that we used to engage in as an indictment and a judgment on what they're doing. And there's some truth to that. I mean, there is. But that's not our purpose. That's not our goal. Our goal and purpose is to reach out to others and to help them. And this is why it is so important for us to encourage each other. When a person becomes a new Christian... And has come out of a worldly lifestyle. It is absolutely essential. That we wrap our arms around them. That we encourage them. That we help them. That we support them. That we give them a new peer group. 
to be involved with so that we can show them what God wants so that we can be there. I believe that one of the reasons that God created the church was partly to be a support group for one another, a peer group, as it were. We are fellow foreigners in the world. We talked about before how that in any country, it seems like, this is the way it happens. That if you have an influx of immigrants, what's going to happen? Those immigrants are going to be drawn to each other. They're going to form their own communities within, within the city or the town. Because they speak the same language. They have the same traditions. They have, you know, uh, the same backgrounds. And when the Irish came over here, you know, 200 years ago and, and settled in Boston, they settled together. Or when Germans came, they settled together. That's why you have Little Italy and you have Chinatown and you have these places in these big cities because they were comfortable together. They felt they could help each other and support each other and that's what they did. That's what we are. We are a Little Italy. We are a Chinatown. We as the church are a Christian town. A little heaven, if you want to call it that. Where we speak the same language. We have the same hope. We have the same future. And we encourage each other. And we help one another. And yes, we go out into the world. And yes, we try to reach others. But together we encourage each other. And bless one another. And help each other. We cannot expect those around us to come to the same acceptance of God's will for their lives. I've seen that. I've seen that in in people who have become Christians. They've come out of the world and they've seen the light. And they understand the gospel. And they feel what God has done for them. And they understand the forgiveness and the hope and all of that. And they just don't understand why their friends won't get it. Look. I'm trying to show you. I know we used to do all this stuff, but look, look, look. And unfortunately, a lot of times, their friends just aren't interested. They just don't care. Why are you trying to change me? You were perfectly happy with me before you changed, so I'm perfectly happy now. That doesn't mean we give up, but we don't get discouraged. And we keep on shining a light. All we can do is witness and teach and love and reach out. Because and and stay committed. Because they are waiting for us to fail. They're waiting for us to fail. Your friends who, who don't share the same standards. Who don't share the same morals. Who don't share the same faith in God. They are waiting for us to fail so that they can say, see, told you, he hadn't changed a bit. Are we going to fail? Probably. Probably. But we don't let that overwhelm us. And we don't let that failure draw us back into the world we came out of. But we let God's grace forgive us. And we let God's strength strengthen us. 
And we move on and become the people God wants us to be. Peter reminds us that eventually there will be a judgment. This should not delight us. But fill us with a sense of urgency. To reach out to those around us. None of us wants to be like Jonah. Mark talked about Jonah a couple weeks ago. Jonah. He hated those Ninevites. And the last thing he wanted was for them to repent. God said, Jonah, you go to those people and you telling me that you repent or I am bringing it down on them. And Jonah's like, yeah, that's what I want. I want fire and brimstone and earthquakes and lightning and, and all these things. That's what I want on the Ninevites. And so Jonah begins to preach. You don't want to be saved, do you? You don't really want to be saved. You, and you know what? They repented. They repented. Even though Jonah's heart wasn't in it, it was the message that reached them. And they repented and God, Jonah, not God, Jonah, went up on a hill and pouted. God says, why are you pouting? Because I knew this was going to happen. I knew you'd forgive them. I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them and I wouldn't get to see the fireworks and the fire and the brimstone and the earthquakes and the lightning and floods and all that kind of stuff. I knew this is what was going to happen. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be the kind of people who just can't wait till God's wrath comes and wreaks his vengeance. We want to be the kind of people who are doing our best to reach out to others and save as many as possible. Peter says in 2 Peter, that's the reason God is waiting now. Why hasn't God brought his judgment now? Why doesn't God bring his judgment right this minute? Because he is patient. He is waiting and hoping that others will come to Christ. And that ought to be our attitude as well. We arm ourselves for the battle ahead. A spiritual battle. We need to be done with sin. We need to live for God's will. And we need to be prepared for the abuse and suffering that might come. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.